Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. On this week's episode, we welcome co-founder and CEO of Lula Convenience, Adit Gupta, to discuss how to fall in love with the problem. Audit shares his journey into the entrepreneurial world and how he was able to pay his way through college as a tennis coach by watching YouTube videos, which eventually led him to founding his first startup, Vibe. Next, Audit shares how his first startup failure laid the foundation for how he would eventually build his next startup, Lula, by avoiding the same mistakes he made on his last venture and why he decided to start with the problem before overbuilding a tech solution with Lula. We get Audit to explain how his experience in the RippleX program laid the foundation for him to build a better understanding of how investors analyze startups and how the program helped him launch his next venture, Lula, while surrounding himself with other like-minded founders who are struggling with their own founder journey. Finally, we ask Audit how he has been able to navigate the current startup climate and how some of the tough decisions he's had to make recently with his company are setting himself up for success in the future. But before we jump into this week's interview with Audit, we welcome back Anthony Mushantif to The Tank to discuss the news and stories making headlines around the tech and venture ecosystem. Anthony, how you doing? I'm good, man. Good to be back. You know, you uh, survived the first time replacing John, so we figured we'd give it another shot here. Uh, didn't get any hate mail, so that's a good thing. But speaking of hate, it seems like hating on tech and VC right now is easy money for the media and politicians after the SVB debacle. And it doesn't sound like anybody is really listening or caring about the counter narrative at this point. So, you know, what's your take on this and what's going on? I mean, listen, I think the public perception issue is that from my vantage point, at least, it's that the VCs kind of panicked, pushed their startups to take their money out. And honestly, SVB, for all the hair that was on what was happening, it was an old-fashioned bank run, right? Like everyone panicked, everyone rushed to get their money out. And the reality is, is a big part of that was triggered by VCs themselves themselves panicking. Now, the challenge is if you game theory this thing out, it's always take your money out. Despite the hate kind of coming through, at the end of the day, they were behaving rationally, especially when the market started to sniff out that something was awry. And there were concerns that if they didn't move, others would. Prosecuting kind of their fiduciary duties to their own companies, I think it was probably the prudent thing within their decision-making matrix to start pushing their companies to try to get out before the thing tipped over. Yeah, I mean, but who's to say, right? I spoke to some of our CEOs this week who had a decent amount of money there. Uh, and the ones that got it out, you know, they looked for like heroes for the weekend. But come Monday, nobody said that they were heroes anymore. They just said, okay, you did the right thing at the time, but we wouldn't have faulted you if you, if you left it in. Uh, and for the ones that got stuck or just didn't make a, a quick enough decision in time, they had a tough weekend, but they came back around Monday and they're back to building businesses. You know, the interesting thing I did hear for whatever it's worth was that the West Coast firms were actually not telling a lot of their companies to take money out, maybe because of the relationships they had with SVB, the legacy they had, especially some of these more, you know, 13, 14, 15 vintage funds that they had, you know, over the years versus some of the East Coast funds, maybe a newer venture ecosystem who doesn't really have as much allegiance to SVB historically, maybe come from a bit more of a finance Wall Street background. They were the ones really pushing for their companies, especially at the later stage, to take their money out fast and put it into JP Morgan. So it's a, it's interesting to see how the East Coast, West Coast mentality really showed its true colors during the, you know, the bank run uh, 48 hour period. That is interesting. I hadn't heard that. That's an interesting cultural bifurcation. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, with your team at RBC, I'm sure everyone like you guys has been very busy uh, trying to help a lot of the ecosystem get a bit more of a stable footing. You know, the Canadian banks uh, on the smaller end, they did try to uh, bond together uh, a few of them like Equitable Trust and Home Capital Group who saw their own bank run 
in uh, 2017 that almost wiped home capital out before they got a lifeline from Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, they've bound together and they sent a letter in to try and increase the limits for Canadian depositors from around $100,000 Canadian up to more in line with the US FDIC limit of 250, which is also being discussed to move up to a much more reactionary level to where the, the FDIC is now being asked to put it. What are your thoughts on this? And do you think we'll see the same thing happen in Canada? I agree with you, right? Like kind of like off the hop, like I, I think better coverage is probably a good thing. My, my sense though, is that the policy rationale there is to protect individuals and, and, and retail depositors more so than businesses. And I think from that standpoint, if you cover up to a hundred thousand, I think probably 250, you know, probably the sweet spot, maybe even a little bit more, but you're covering large swaths of the market. Certainly the kind of working class and middle-class folks who can put their money and have that kind of peace of mind. I think what this reinforces though is is I think if you're an operating business, whether you're a small business, kind of mid-market, large business, whatever the case may be, like it matters who you work with, right? And and it's kind of hitting home again where companies and even individuals are used to getting whatever, higher rates on their savings with, you know, no name bank or fintech A. But there's a real currency to the flight to safety, right? Like you see the role that JP Morgan's playing in the US as frankly a quasi government entity at this point. And, you know, Canadians by virtue of their kind of history, like we just haven't had as fragmented of a banking sector as the Americans have had. And that's just a function of our, our own history. So by and large, our financial sector is largely sort of concentrated, but also incredibly stable, thankfully, and hopefully will continue to be. But I think it reinforces this point that people need to be cognizant of how deposits work. And who you're banking with, quote unquote, really, really matters. Yeah. I mean, you pay for what you get. Obviously, if you're enticed by reward systems or higher interest rates for putting your money with that bank, you know, you got to understand, like, how are they actually able to pay you back that interest rate or offer you those rewards if, you know, an RBC or TD who's way bigger and way more established can't offer you those, right? It's not because they're bad business people. It's, it's because their business models are much more, you know, structurally sound and they don't need to use these enticing mechanisms to try to lure you in with higher rates or better rewards. I kind of tell people who don't really understand how deposits work. It's like, imagine you were moving homes and you were trying to put your, uh, your goods into a storage locker. And you could find any storage locker out there to hold on to your physical goods for the six, 12 months that you're, you know, you're moving homes or something. But do you really think all storage facilities are all the same? Do they all have the same insurance coverage? They have the same security infrastructure. They all offer you 24 acts, 24 seven access, all these different little things that you want to know you have with your physical goods is sort of the same thing you should think about when it comes to banking, which we just took for granted for the last, you know, 25, 50 years, because everything kind of looked and felt the same. But, you know, we'll see. I think one question I'd like to get your thoughts on, though, is, you know, we're seeing this forced merger between UBS and Credit Suisse by the Swiss National Bank. Obviously, Credit Suisse had their own issues for quite some time. But do you think we'll see the same thing with SVB, you know, being forced to acquire something that was only the 16th largest bank in the US by the US government? Or do you think we'll just see it break up into a bunch of different pieces and be sold off for scraps? Yeah, it's hard to know. I, honestly, I have no idea. What I will say, though, is like SVB is is decades of damn near excellence, right? Especially in, in the tech and innovation sphere, right? So so above and beyond kind of the, the balance sheet there, there's some real IP, amazing human capital. Um, so there's real value there to the to the commercial banking business in, in the US. Now with HSBC picking up the UK business, I guess that kind of starts to fragment it a little bit. I don't know where most of the IP and rails and the infrastructure sits. I suspect it's in that North American US entity. So, you know, above and beyond 
being forced to acquire the bank. I think there's definitely, there's a lot there. And the folks at SVB and that institution has a ton of IP and a ton of human capital that I think would be really interesting for for third-party observers. The one other thing I'll say, just kind of bring it back uh, to, to your question on the insurance, in markets like the UK, where they are, I'd say, kind of ahead of us temporally from an open banking standpoint, right, where you have a bunch of these kind of digital-only challenger banks emerging, there are actually business models now that are emerging for centralizing one point of contact, one platform interface, but distributing your deposits to maximize your insurance coverage, which is something that I encountered a few years ago. And it was a little bit foreign to me as a kind of North American in the UK. But this whole notion of how your insured deposits play into your kind of overall capital allocation strategy as an individual or as a business, I think is starting to play in. And I wonder if that'll start to prop up in the in the US and Canada in kind of the aftermath of what we've seen. Yeah, the idea of treasury risk management for a startup was never really a concept that was being discussed, especially at the board level. And now there are conversations happening for companies, you know, with 10, 20 million plus in the bank. You know, what is your cash sweep policy? What is your allocation between T-bills and GICs and all these different types of non-cashable, cashable government bonds for generating interest and stuff? Never before was it a topic of conversation at the board level. But now, obviously, with interest rates where they are, people are having these conversations. You know, another interesting thing I'd love to get your take on that I've heard recently is some of these later stage companies that are sitting on, you know, 50 million plus of paid in capital with fundamental businesses that have not really found product market fit are sitting around and thinking to themselves, what are we going to do here? One, you know, investors are not getting their money back. And two, there's not necessarily a buyer, but we do have cash, which, you know, people think cash is king. And I've heard that some later stage companies are looking to swap cash for equity in better businesses and essentially aqua hire the business through an equity swap for that cash. What are your thoughts on that? And do you think we're starting to see the move of like startups becoming almost VC funds with the cash they have on the balance sheet? It's wild, isn't it? Like there there was a time where when you were sitting on cash and you kind of hit a wall, you would return the cash to the investors (laughs) was kind of the custom. And now you're right. Like we're seeing these companies sitting on war chests and kind of not really sure what to do with it and, and, and declining to return the money, right? So I don't know. I mean, do you take on the role of a quasi VC investing off your balance sheet? Do you try to find some accretive acquisitions? I don't know the answer, but it's, and I still think it's a corner case by and large. Sure. Definitely a corner case, but it will be an interesting uh, transition for some of these companies who never were able to hit escape velocity, but were able to attract large amounts of capital who maybe spacked or had some other later stage uh, event happen where now the fundamentals of the business just don't justify the the last valuation and they've got to figure a different exit ramp for them to help save the investors capital plus the employees and whatever other stakeholders the business has. I've seen some wild stick saves over the course of being into like sometimes things happen like that's kind of the beauty of tech too right sometimes like you hit product market fit almost accidentally. I've seen some salespeople do insane stuff like insane in a good way like identify some angle, some segment, some whatever. And so you never know with these things, right? Like they're not sufficiently established going concerned businesses where there's nothing there. It's like if they iterate enough and find something adjacent, you just, man, you just never know. 
Yeah, and exactly like kind of what we're seeing with SBB or some of these other negotiated lifelines. Like you never know what really happens behind closed doors in the board meetings. Like, yes, UBS is acquiring Credit Suisse, but like when you look in the details, like all their bondholders are getting wiped out. Essentially, the equity holders are getting wiped out. Like you can't just take the headlines on what you read as actually what's happening on the fundamentals of like the transactions that are being negotiated right now. So it's an interesting time. Thanks again for joining us for another news rundown with Anthony Mushantif. Pleasure as always. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Audit Gupta from Lula Convenience. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Audit. Thanks for having me, Matt. You know, Audit, we obviously know each other pretty well, given that our firm has been an early investor and supporter of you for several years now, and you were an early member of our Ripple X Fellowship Program before starting your current startup. But it would be great if you can give our audience a bit of a background on your personal journey and what you did before starting Lula. I've had a tech background my entire life. I got into tech accidentally, completely was not hoping to sort of build apps and software and all of that stuff. I was actually a business major and freshman year of college, I went to my first hackathon and it blew my mind. And literally the week after I, I changed my major to software engineering and the rest is history. And so have worked in tech, a number of larger companies have attempted to build previous companies before and now working on, uh, disrupting the convenience store space in America. Nice. And we'll we'll get into all of that. But I did hear that you've been a hustler since your early days. I remember you hearing a story that during high school, you were actually faking it until you made it as a tennis coach to pay for your education while you were at Drexel. Can you explain how that actually happened and how you use YouTube to help you become an actual tennis coach? It's, It's so funny because it all started, I think I was watching Catch Me If You Can. One of my favorites. Yeah. And it's like, are you a pilot? It's like, sure. <laughs> and so I found myself on a tennis coach early in high school and some some kid walked up and and they were like, hey, I'm looking for a tennis coach. And I was like, I think I know a few people. By the way, I, I, do, the, I do the tennis coach thing as well. So I went home very excited that I have a new job and I figured out kind of how does the job work from YouTube and Googling what tennis coaches do. What did a tennis coach on YouTube actually teach you how to do? Yeah. I mean, so my first step, right, I had to buy a tennis racket. <laughs> so step at one. that point, step one, I had to buy a tennis racket. And so I, I did that. I went to my nearby Target and, and did that. And then step two, I actually had to figure out, well, can I get good enough on the theory to be able to just teach, reteach that theory because no one's going to basically be watching me out there playing the U S open. I just have to reteach the core concepts. And so key, key things, forehand, backhand footwork, your swing trajectory is what I learned from YouTube lessons. And then, uh, repeated those in, in the next like 10 lessons. And, you know, with, within a span of four years, we grew that from, from one person to a whole bunch of folks that ended up, uh, trusting me to teach them with tennis. That's amazing. Yeah. You built like a a little bit of like a tennis trainer uh, online booking an app and allowed uh, 60 to 70 people, I believe, work for you or work as uh, customers of yours and help you pay for your university education. Yeah. I think the money was always a nice outcome. It was just really nice to, after my classes, be able to communicate with folks that were like 20 years old and then folks that were like 75 years old to go teach them their uh, grandchildren and go teach at the holiday parties that their companies might be hosting. And so over time, that reputation just accumulated. And so I built this tennis app because there were like three tennis coaches in my area. And I was like, how do, how do I differentiate what I offer? And so I just found how to build an app on YouTube after my three weeks of coding classes, my freshman year. 
That is amazing. So I guess that was your first startup, but you also had some amazing co-ops and uh, internship roles at places like SAP, Susquehanna, and Comcast. You know, how impactful were those corporate internships on your understanding of, you know, how large organizations work and, and why your heart was not really into actually working corporate and eventually into the startup place where you wanted to be? Yeah, I was very lucky to to be accepted to work at all those incredible places. And in fact, I, early days, I may even have taken down a couple of websites just by not really knowing how to code appropriately. But at all of my internships, I, I worked as software, as, an, as a software engineer, as sort of an AI person and just learned my way through kind of the job. And my key motivator to work at a lot of different places was really figure out like, how does the world work? I was always a little younger th- throughout college. And so my goal was literally to figure out, like, how does a company work? And by, you know, certain blessings, I was able to really figure out how businesses work by reaching out to people higher up at companies and just asking them, how does Susquehanna's business model work? Like, why do you guys even exist? Comcast, like, what are all of your products? So what did you start as? And uh, doing all of those interviews, I realized that at the very basic kind of point. Companies have this core moat and they evolve over time, but the folks telling those stories at large corporations weren't very excited about that core moat. They really didn't care at that stage. And I kind of thought of at an earlier stage in life, if I'm not in that position, would I be happy? And not really. And so learn a lot, but didn't really see myself spending like 30 years at a really large and incredible corporation. Yeah, I mean, definitely good learnings and understandings of how these companies get to where they are. But if you're not really passionate about the problems that they're solving, you know, your startup vibe that you started after, uh, you know, working in those internship roles was described as a real-time Yelp that was bootstrapped, but it didn't actually work out for you. And you wrote about all those lessons and the failings. Can you share some about something about those lessons you learned from that experience that you took with you onto your next venture, Lula? Working at Vibe was one of the best jobs I ever had. I was able to really concentrate on a project for many years, and we ended up not raising any venture capital. The idea started when we were actually trying to go to a nearby like hospitality location, and it turned out that we spent all this money on Uber for nothing. Uh, we got to the experience. It was just a bad experience. And, you know, I think actually even before then, we we were trying to solve like a verification transparency issue, which pivoted into this like real-time Yelp experience. At, at the core of it, at three years spent working on a company while in undergrad, I learned a ton. One of the biggest things I learned is really you should work on like an actual problem that you care about, that you know, that you've had. And I think when it come when it came down to kind of like the brass tacks of vibe, it was a problem that I thought I had, but I don't know if I would even pay for that problem. I don't, we couldn't find a single person out there to pay for the problem either. Because of that reason, we decided to shut her down. But even beyond that, I think it was a key learning earlier on that team is key. It could really make or break you. It could 10x you or it could destroy you. You know, at that time we didn't have money. And so we had to build a team of like 20 interns. And, you know, even through that, 80% of the work was happening from like three people. It was my co-founder, myself, and like one other person. That was a key lesson. Like, how do you get team members that are truly dedicated and actually will 10x the business? And I think the last big mistake that was made was over-engineering for many years. We spent years trying to solve a problem that we didn't really know existed, uh, but we were really excited about the tech and we kept coding. We didn't do low kind of fidelity testing on any of our hypotheses. 
that really hurt us at the end. Yeah, I think we we've spoken about this, you know, uh, many times uh, about how some people think that the solution will solve the problem when really they actually are truly not understanding what the problem really is that they're trying to solve. And they're just building a solution for the sake of building. And we find that a lot of times with early stage startups, which we'll get into with what you're doing at Lula and how you're trying to do it differently. But would you say that because you are still obviously excited about how technologies were becoming more open source and you can build on different Lego blocks, you were just trying to keep building that like, you know, as a child, you try to make the Lego stack as high as possible without toppling over without actually knowing if like the first foundation of it was actually going to solve the problem that you were set out to hopefully solve? I think it's like the key hypothesis. Most entrepreneurs when starting a company early on, and I was guilty of this, think of entrepreneurship with all kind of the, the glamour and like, you know, the fun lifestyle. It's really not the case. And if you're doing it for that, you should like, that's not the that reality of things. And I, I think that the biggest thing to take away from what you've said to like build on experiences, I think at that time we were just trying to work as hard as we could so we wouldn't have to, you know, struggle on later. And so the goal was to like, hey, can we just keep working hard and maybe build something cool in college, potentially drop out of college? That didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, I think that was a great lesson for you. But, you know, also before starting Lula, your next venture, you did the Ripple X Fellowship Program, which is where our team met you. Yeah, that's correct. And what was that experience like? And how did the program help you think about, you know, starting your next venture? and, And what were some of the biggest benefits you got from the program? How I first came across the program was when I was working on Vibe, one of the current entrepreneurs that is a part of the program um, actually invited me for a demo pitch. And as kind of the founder, I pitched in this large sort of virtual room of fellows in the previous batch and actually got so much great feedback. It helped us pivot a little bit. When it came time to restart the company, Uh, actually right before then, I wanted to just get a feeling of like, what is it from the other side of the table? What are key conversations like? How do you look at a business from a business potential standpoint? Um, Because at the end of the day, you're putting money to bet on something that will give you a good return and have good social impact potentially. The fellowship helped illuminate that entire side of the world, which was just unknown to me before doing the fellowship. You know, it's interesting to hear you describe it that way, because we always say, you know, we're we're backing the future founders and future funders. But it's interesting to hear that you as a founder were very curious about how the funders were going to be observing and analyzing your business. And also the funders who join it from like, let's say business programs, they want to think about how they can be a good operator mindset as a founder while they're in the program, which is really interesting. And obviously with the relationship that you had built with our partner, Dom, and everyone else at the team, you eventually stumbled on your next idea, which is Lula. So how did it get its start? And maybe explain to your audience what the problem was you were initially trying to solve. Taking us all back to the dreaded March of 2020, when the whole world started to shut down. I was in grad school. And then during that time, my parents were operating a convenience store in New Jersey. And when COVID happened, foot traffic went down virtually to zero in that store. And during that time, I was doing these, all of these orders from nearby like e-commerce websites and uh, always getting kind of scolded. Like, hey, why aren't you just getting all of this stuff from our store? We have it, but yet you're spending all this money on all these different websites. As you would say, the naive 20-year-old, I was like, why don't you just put your stuff on a website? And then, you know, my parents were like, you know, we've 
that sounds like a lot of work. I don't know how to do that. Easy. I'll just take a weekend, do it for you. Well, that weekend turned into three to four weeks. I tried to put all of their items on like 15 different places from Amazon, Shopify, try to build and own their own app, try to sign up for a Grubhub, Uber Eats and DoorDash account. Never heard back from them at that time. And you know, that, that was kind of a hair pulling experience of having all the supply, but like no access to demand where demand is clearly there. So that that's why we started. And this time around, I didn't want to make the same mistake as my previous company building something for years. I just wanted to like quickly validate if there's any value in building this. So I remember it was July or or August. I I texted Dom and said, Hey Dom, I he knew that I was out of my previous business and I was like, Hey Dom, I have this idea and I think this is how I'm gonna validate it. What do you think? And how I was going to validate it is I sent him an Instagram link of an account called drinks and chips. I think we still have it to this day with like pictures of chips and pictures of drinks and a link to a Stripe payment link on the, on the description or bio of Instagram. Believe it or not, we actually ended up having getting 19 people to buy from us in like a short couple weeks, which was more money than we made than three years of coding in my previous company. And I think that's when Tom and I were like, I, I think there's something here. Granted, it wasn't a lot of feedback or a lot of data, but we just had a spark there and we wanted to dive right in and explore this further towards the end of 2020. You no, know, it's so interesting. You you basically took it back to the basics, you know, keep it simple, stupid, which is what we tell all of our pre-seed founders, which is you got to take two steps back before you take one step forward when going to build a technology company, trying to solve a problem you don't really know much about. And oftentimes, a lot of founders just want to build, 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 solve, 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 without actually understanding what the problem is and what kind of a initial uh, solution they need to build. And you build the most basic solution, which was an Instagram page. And obviously, you took the experiences from Vibe with your you know, co-founder, Tom Falzani, and thought about this a little bit differently than how you built the last company. So you know, now the decision to not move as fast and just build a bunch of different prototypes was how Lula was going to get its start, but in a cautious way, right? So based on your experience, you know, what were you going to do differently after realizing you couldn't scale a business on an Instagram page to start really understanding and obsessing about the problem you were going to go solve? So, you know, the key difference here was at Vibe, I was very excited to do everything that you do to build a company incorporate the company, find all these lawyers and pay them money to kind of do that stuff, get a logo and get a trademark, all of, you know, build a beautiful website. And so this time we were like, I don't think we should do any of that. And we should just start calling customers and say, we have a product ready. And is this something that you'd be interested in? And at that point, we started going to Google and finding convenience stores across the country and just cold calling them. I remember June, July of 2020, Tom and I, after a summer day, we were playing virtual Monopoly and calling convenience stores on, on our time. We called like 50 stores and and all of them go like, hey, I'm too busy right now to, to leave me alone. But we did find like a solid 10 that were like, yeah, we're interested in delivery. Can you uh, send me more information at this email? And that just gave us enough ammo to figure out like, what is the root problem here? Like, what if people tried are we crazy that we weren't able to do delivery? Are all of the people having a difficulty in doing this? And you know, it helped correct our first hypothesis. We potentially saved millions of dollars 
and many months by not pursuing our first idea that we were going to do by do, by just talking to customers. Yeah, I mean, let's let's double click on that for a sec. You know, going out and speaking with customers seems so foreign to a lot of first time founders, like in the field, right? You know, I was talking with another founder the other day, and he's like, "Yeah, I flew on a plane for four hours just to have a half an hour meeting with like a very big potential customer." not knowing if I would just to get their insight and their time with them because they were so experienced in the problem we were trying to figure out. So what were some of those conversations like and how did you prove your own hypothesis wrong? So, you know, th- now it's like early 2021, we had just gotten into an accelerator and it was the same concept of we were a three-sided marketplace, uh, delivery app uh, and uh, driver kind of delivery experience and then a merchant kind of portal. Um, so three-sided marketplace, and we were going out to recruit, and we built all of this on Wix. So Tom and I spent three months from September to December building everything on Wix and with their kind of coding uh, kind of experience in Wix. And Wix actually reached out to us, and they were like, hey, it sounds like you're doing the most on Wix that we've seen a lot of people do. So maybe you should be on like the uh, advocate board or whatever. So we built these three apps in three months. And we started to recruit drivers and we started to recruit those stores that we originally had called. And then we had started to uh, continue to get people to just find us from our Instagram page. And so people would order from our Instagram page and we would fulfill those orders uh, by letting a store know with like a text message we'd send them. And then we would text the driver. And oftentimes what would happen is like no drivers would accept the order. And then what would happen is we'd realize that the drivers are charging more than what was the average order value of the order people were getting from Instagram. And so instead of building these three concepts, we were we talked to our customers and they were not, they were not happy with our service. They were not getting enough orders. Even when they were getting orders, they just thought it was really confusing because there was a mismatch of like what we were selling and what was actually in their store. And Tom and I realized. At this point, like early 2021 was our issue isn't to rebuild a marketplace. The issue out there is that supply can't meet demand. And that's the same issue that we experienced. So why don't we just make things simpler and connect supply to demand in the most hacky way possible? And so at that point, we were like, all right, what is demand? People go to Grubhub, people go to Uber Eats, Postmates, Seamless, XYZ. What if we just put a convenience store on there as a test and see what happens? We took some time and actually did the manual work of putting a store. It's like 600 items by dragging and dropping pictures to four different websites. And a couple of weeks later, after all of that hard work was done, we realized we had actually made more money in in a day than all of our previous deliveries combined. And it was a couple hundred bucks from that one store. And the store was happy. They were getting a ton of orders, but we gave them like six tablets. We did all of the work for them, but we we thought there was something there. Like this experience of taking this service, this tech-enabled service to get a store's items online and then actually manage all of that. Instead of giving them six tablets, well, can we give them one tablet and can they manage their own inventory in one tablet? And, you know, that's that's what Lula is today. Yeah, I mean, like just explain to maybe our audience how many SKUs of products that convenience stores have. I mean, I always get shocked when I ever go into a convenience store, how they do it, but explain how the maybe the whole convenience store industry works and how individual 
mom and pop shops and franchises and then large, you know, CPG suppliers kind of control a lot of the flow of inventory and stuff. How does that all work? There's convenience stores all over the world. And actually last year I had the opportunity to travel to a couple of different countries. And I realized that this problem exists in seven different countries. Uh, but in the U.S. specifically, there's about 150,000 convenience stores, which makes up of nearly $360 billion worth of gross goods moved annually. So of those $360 billion worth of stuff that is moved, less than 5% is online. Actually, less than like 2% is online, even today in 2023. What we created was a way for a store that has like anywhere from 2,000 to 8,000 products digitized in one platform. And then we actually syndicated all of that stuff uh, across all of these different delivery apps like Grubhub and DoorDash and Uber Eats and Postmates. And now for one store, it takes three weeks of labor and many hours of recurring labor out of the equation. And they just pay us a monthly subscription for that. And that's the business model that you've continued to keep in place today, or how has the business model involved since those early, really MVP days? It's involved in a really interesting way. In the early days, we would actually charge everyone the same subscription. We wanted to keep things very easy. So we charged everyone like a rounded close to $100 just to use our service. And we basically did a lot of work behind the scenes and just gave everything away for $100. As we grew, we realized that some stores and chains were getting a tremendous amount of value, but yet we were still charging that $100. And so we baked in a transactional component so that the stores that do $10,000 of delivery per month have a different kind of a, uh, payment than stores that do like $100 of delivery per month. And so that's kind of what, what it shifted to today. And we've actually also realized that there's a tremendous amount of upsell opportunity with the features that we were already giving away for free, but now we can charge for it because people love not having to manage their own delivery. In fact, some enterprise customers spend seven to $800,000 a year building an e-commerce team, and now they can deprecate that with a monthly subscription. Yeah. And as we've obviously worked closely together, you know, our two teams, we really try to focus on, you know, understanding your ICP and learning how to say no to the wrong customers as you start to understand the the size of the problem that you're trying to solve. So what advice would you give to other, you know, first-time founders who are still trying to figure out one, their ICP, their non-buyer persona, and also the real problem that they need to focus on solving today versus getting too spread too thin, I guess. We are super thankful to, to you and Dom for helping kind of course correct here. We were getting a lot of independent stores across the country onboarded, and we were realizing all of these kind of niche uh, data points. We were realizing that it was very operationally intensive, taking a huge toll on our gross margins. We were realizing that there's a lot of segmentation of infrastructure, of technical infrastructure. And so in order to service folks, we would actually have to build 75 different integrations versus three to get to our goals for our next round of financing. And what we realized is that like, there's actually more value add for a chain that wants to deliver, that's trying their best to deliver, but just it's hard. And so we've pivoted in that direction to provider experience and, and service to mid-market chains and enterprise customers, chains that have 10 stores, chains that have 300. The largest chains that we're currently servicing has about a thousand locations. And um, that's the direction we're going in now. But 
Our mission started with, with independent stores. So we actually built guardrails for how do we service independent stores that will actually have positive economics. So we built a self-serve onboarding experience to empower independent stores that have the self-motivation to go live. And so when we made that change, folks had reached out to me and they're like, what you're doing now is very different from why you started this business. How do you feel about that? And I think a lot of founders today are pivoting and building businesses that can survive this sort of storm that's happening in, in the world. And I think about it very metaphorically with kind of this Elon Musk theory of, you know, build something for the folks that really want something kind of a little bit more expensive for a Tesla, uh, a more expensive Tesla. You use the proceeds of that to kind of build a much more mass kind of product and then you specialize even further. And I, th- I think that's how we look at it. We, our vision is to support this entire industry, you know, but to, to weather the storm, we need to kind of make sure Lula can exist long-term. And so we have to make these pivots very quickly and nimbly. Yeah. Going very niche and going very vertical in the beginning is the best way to be a hundred percent valuable to a, a new customer. If you try to be 10% of the value across so many different use cases horizontally, you'll never get anyone to really buy into your to your vision or your product in the early days. But you've also had to kind of change the the branding to go alongside with this focus on you know the entire convenience store operating system. So you change your name from Lula Delivery to Lula Convenience recently. You know, how was that rebranding decision made and what was some of the biggest reasons for you changing the name? I think a lot of it is based on just confusion, right? We started Lula Delivery when we were a delivery company. We recruited delivery drivers. And the long-term vision that we want to build is is one where we are the delivery company that does not deliver. And in fact, we we are building a brand that delivery is kind of the first thing people, you know, come to us for, but then we have all of these additional services and add-ons and things that help make up the kind of the operating system for a convenience store. And so delivery is just the first unit of that. And so the first step for us internally was to just get aligned. Like, do we want to build a company that that does order aggregation for other verticals, restaurants, bars, hotels, et cetera? Or do we want to build a company that continues to solve problems for a very specific key market and can eventually build the infrastructure that powers the entire market. What's the better long-term ROI for the end customer? And so that's why we decided to rebrand as Lula Convenience. And actually, we have some really excited products that and add-ons that we are aiming to launch later this year as a part of Lula Convenience um, that will continue to be dedicated for convenience retail. I mean, since launching the platform, you are obviously able to gain some amazing traction along with some decent investors, including ourselves, Outlander VC, and Up Partners for an oversubscribed $5.5 million seed round in early 2022. You know, how has the support of VCs helped you think about building and scaling the business? And what sort of big aha moments have you been able to realize since working with partners like us at Ripple? We are so lucky to have the, the folks that we have around the table. And you know, looking back at it, Tom and I are first-time founders that are trying to uh, to build something that can help people. And the core understanding that Tom and I have is is we care more about like who we bring around the table than keeping all of our equity. We would rather have the team members around the table that can help us have the most impact and the best financial outcome than just being a two two person party. And so, very lucky to have. You guys at Ripple, Laura and Paige at Outlander, and then 
alley at Up Partners to be around that table and and another kind of several incredible investors that came on and around. So one thing we do that's kind of unique is even though we're a seed stage company, we actually have quarterly board meetings with key investors just for practice for when we get to that next stage and we have to actually have a little bit more strict corporate governance. Um, and so having you guys around the table has actually helped us create that corporate governance at a very early stage and make crucial pivots like downsizing, like key ICP changes early on, which we would have not been aware of if Tom and I were running the show. Yeah. I mean, you obviously have done the the hard work and been receptive to feedback, which is the most vital thing for founders in this time. Obviously, navigating these markets has been hard for first-time founders and even second-time or third-time founders, but the amount of maturity and the amount of responsiveness and reaction that you and Tom have uh, implemented at Lula definitely is is definitely well received uh, by us and all the other investors. So kudos to you for doing the hard work. But obviously, you've had to put uh, your company in a much stronger position today versus twelve months ago. You know, what are some of the biggest challenges you've had to face in recent months to put yourself in a stronger position? That's that's a great question, Matt. So I think it it really at the end of the day comes down to the basic kind of trade of barter you're giving someone something in the money you're receiving. And so the better economics you can make around that barter, very simple, you know, kiss, keep it simple. The things that we're trying to keep simple as we go into our next phase of growth or can we prove that we can get existing customers much more economically with, with spending less money? Can we prove that we can do that with a smaller sales team? Can we prove that we can do that by automating our onboarding processes, uh, which in fact we recently did using ChatGPT and all of these automation tools? Can we figure out how we can increase the customer contract value by providing more value and, and just pivoting our pricing, which we're in the process of doing right now? And several other things, but the, the idea really stemmed from, you know, I think, Matt, I asked you in one of our weekly meetings, like, what do the other port codes do and or what do the other port code CEOs do in their weekly check-ins? So we got all that feedback from the incredible group of port codes that you guys have. And now we're just tracking that on a week-to-week basis and keeping ourselves very, very intellectually honest and accountable on those metrics that we were hoping to get. Yeah, it, it is amazing to see the amount of responsiveness that our Ripple tank Slack chat has of people just wanting to support everyone, knowing that everyone's going through the same sort of things. They're just obviously focusing on different problems with different solutions, but the day-to-day stuff, you know, obviously that you talk about in your, your weekly meetings and your management team meetings are all similar. So it's great to hear uh, that you're seeing the value and obviously all the CEOs and founders around the table helping guide everyone through these tough times. You know, I'd love to ask before we jump into our final fast favorite section is, you know, what is your long-term vision for Lula over the next 12 to 14 months? And, and what do you hope to prove during that time? At the very essence, we're, we're trying to connect the store to the world. What that basically means is we're taking a convenience store or a convenience store chain and helping them and empowering them to get their inventory on everywhere. At this moment, there's certain demand channels that I've, I've talked about, but we're also talking to other very popular demand channels that people use, increasing kind of the amount of money folks make. You know, over the next 12 to 14 months, we're also looking to solidify our moat. At the end of the day, when we work with a 50, 100, or 1,000 sort of chain, we take their inventory and we're able to make a highly converting menu of items that people from all of these demand channels click on and buy from. And at the very basic 
kind of case, that is our moat at this moment. We are just hoping to continue to dive deep and and be really good at our moat. Constant experimentation on making our moat better from every department is what we expect um, here at Lula on our weekly meetings. Well, it's fantastic to see the way you guys have navigated the storm and continue to see great execution from you and Tom and the rest of the Lula team. So excited to be along for the ride. You know, before we wrap things up, we always jump into our fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. I would say How I Built This by Guy Raz, but I would say my first answer is Tank Talks. Oh, get out of here. (laughs) You're just saying that to make me feel good. Uh, Next is your favorite newsletter or blog. I have immense respect for Nikhil Trivedi from Footworks blog, also his annual posts. So maybe for this one, I'll pick that. I love it. NBT, next big thing, Nikhil Basu Traviti, amazing guest of the pod and an amazing thinker. One of the best blogs out there, very underrated. Favorite tech gadget? I spent five minutes thinking about this. I kid you not, Matt. I, I don't know. I'd say my air fryer. I use it almost. Which one do you have? I don't know. I have like three. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's an obsession with tech, uh, air fryers. Uh, and I, I also heard you, you still use an electric scooter, aren't you, out of the college years? Yeah, I I bought an electric scooter early on. It's because I was in DC working, loved Bird, loved it so much that I just bought an electric scooter. So fantastic. So next, your favorite new trend? Yeah. So recently I've been using ChatGPT for everything. Even earlier today, my partner and I were were looking at apartments. And so I asked ChatGPT to actually compare and contrast all the apartments, distance from our closest restaurant that we like to go and it did all of it. So I, I like using that. No, fantastic. Next is your favorite book. Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss is, is one of my favorites. I recently read that. Yeah, one of the best ones for sure. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. There's two that I really think about. And the, the first is always think about like the long-term impact of what you're doing. I think that's something I learned the hard way over the last five years. Really think through the long-term impact of what you're hoping to do. Um, and I just stay true to your values is something that's kind of undersold. You should just stay true to who you are and be genuine. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we obviously are excited to continue supporting you, Audit. So thanks for joining us in the tank today with Audit Gupta, co-founder and CEO of Lula Convenience. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Maddie B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time.